0: I'm going to read just briefly from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. This is Luke's 80 verse chapter. You know how you're reading through the Bible in a year? And you're like, oh, I'm going to read four chapters a day. You know if you read four chapters a day, you would get through the Bible in a year, easily. But this is one of those chapters that's a little tricky. It's 80 verses long, so it's almost like two chapters. But In the middle here, he records what Mary has to say when she hears Elizabeth's greeting, which is in turn a response to John's rejoicing in her womb, which is in turn a response to Mary's greeting which has come about because of the angel's greeting, telling her that she has conceived a son, specifically the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So it's this sequence of greetings that has brought about this climax. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Here again the word of the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Amen. There's an interesting little thing that happens in my Bible. On this left side column, there's footnotes that include other scripture references that are parallel to the verse you're looking at. This paragraph right here has three references. This paragraph down here has one reference. This paragraph in the middle that are the verses I just read about Mary have all these references. Mary was a master exegete. Mary did not invent this cool little line. Mary is pulling together major threads and themes of the Old Testament and saying they are all pointing to this pregnancy. They have all come down to this, all these Old Testament books. All generations will call me blessed. She's quoting Yael. The woman who spiked Sisera in the temple and killed him. She says that he exalts the lowly. She's quoting from Psalm 113. He fills the hungry with good things and sends away the rich. She's quoting from Hannah in 1 Samuel. She is going by book by book, verse by verse through the Old Testament and saying, It has all come down to this. My child, Jesus Christ. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 113. Now that you know where my sermon is going. Psalm 113. I mentioned before that Psalm 113 is the first of the Egyptian Hallels. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. You guys may recognize the word hallelujah. The first two-thirds of that word is hallel. So praise, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That word appears in these psalms, but not every one of them exclusively. I'll talk about that later. In Psalm 113, it begins with the word hallelujah. It's translated here, praise the Lord. Psalm 113 also ends with hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's this focus on praising God specifically for the Exodus. Psalms 113 through 118 are these psalms that praise God for his exodus, bringing us up out of Egypt. Psalm 113. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is... High above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may sit him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen and amen. When I was a little boy, and Ronald Reagan was president, I was sitting at the far left end, no political reference intended, of a blonde pew. We were there in the sanctuary of the Kingston Christian Missionary Lions Church where I grew up and where my family had worshipped every Lord's Day for years. My childhood pastor was there in the pulpit, and he was thundering away about the love of God in Christ. And as a little boy on the far left side of the auditorium, on the far left side of the blonde pew, as antisocially placed as I could possibly get, I looked up at him and I thought... That's my future. I want to be a preacher. I want to get into a pulpit, and I want to thunder away about the love of God in Christ. Not surprisingly, that ambition suffered many distractions, detours, and obstacles, none greater than the one that came right in the middle of my freshman year at Geneva College, I had finished the fall semester, my grades were good, but my money was gone. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to have to drop out. I don't have any money. And my dad asked me a strange question. He said, Are you called to be a pastor? And I said, I think so. And he said, Must pastors have a college education? And I said, I, I think so. And he said, then the Lord will provide the money, you just need to find it. Well, with that encouragement, with that counsel in mind, I went over to Alexander Hall to the offices of the financial aid department. I went in to see Steve Bell, the director of financial aid, and I said, I'm out of money, I need help. He brought up my file and he said, I'm sorry, you're already receiving the maximum amount of help Geneva College allows a student to get. Then he paused for a moment and said, but are you interested in getting a degree in Christian ministries or biblical studies? I said, I am thinking of being a pastor. He said, perfect, go see Dean Smith. You can get a scholarship for getting that degree. I kid you not. Jesus paid for my college by making me get a degree in biblical studies. You can't make this stuff up. Jesus... Not only showed me my future. He secured it. He brought it about. I'm in your pulpit this morning. Because Jesus wants me here. He knows what he's doing. This is the truth. This is the gospel. Good news for us this morning. That. When we begin to pray for or about our future, what we must keep in mind is that Jesus is that future. The truth for us this morning is that Jesus is our future. So let us fill our prayers with his praises. When we pray for our future, let us pray full of his praises. Notice at the beginning of our psalm, verse 1, we are commanded to praise God three times. Praise the Lord, praise O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. The psalmist lists the verb three times. Praise, praise, praise. The reason he does that is because we're forgetful. Because we forget to praise him. Because tomorrow morning, you're all going to be really busy fighting traffic and trying to deal with emails, and you're going to forget to praise Him. And so the psalmist says three times, no, 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 you're supposed to praise Him, even on Monday morning. Because you're all going to get really hungry in half an hour and wonder why I'm still talking. And he's going to say, no, 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 you're here to praise Him. As a forgetful people, we need Psalm 13 to tell us repeatedly, praise Him, praise Him, Praise Him. But what is more, we're told it three times because He is thrice worthy of praise. He is a God worthy of our praise, worthy of being praised not just once, twice, but three times. He is worthy of an hour of worship. He is worthy of 90 minutes of worship. He is worthy of a whole day of public and private worship. He is worthy of a lifetime of worship. He is worthy of an eternity of worship. And so the psalmist says to us, the forgetful people, do not be distracted with the unworthy things of this world. Be focused on the worthy God who is thrice worthy of praise. But then the psalmist also tells us who it is he's addressing. This message, don't forget to praise God, This message, your God is worthy to be praised, belongs to the servants of the Lord. This phrase, praise him, O servants of the Lord, connects us immediately to the Exodus. Because this is what the fight was over down in Egypt. Do you remember when God first sent Moses down? Moses went into Pharaoh's palace and Moses addresses Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go, in Charlton Heston's voice. That they might serve me. me. Pharaoh immediately understands what the issue is here. God has come to lay claim of his servants. Let my people go that they might serve me. And Pharaoh says, no deal. They're going to serve me. And for ten rounds, God and Pharaoh fight over who's going to get the servant. Pharaoh wins none. And after the 10th round, Pharaoh's future is dead. His economy is in ruins. His government is in shambles. The heir to his throne is dead. Egypt is no longer a kingdom. I find it tremendously ironic and absolutely overwhelming that God leaves Pharaoh intact and cuts out his whole kingdom from underneath him. Oh, you want to be king? You want to have servants? I will leave you as king. I'm just going to take away your whole kingdom. He has no wealth, he has no military, he has no kid, he has no future. But Egypt has been saved through Israel's exodus. There's a tremendous promise in the prophets in which it says, A highway will be built to Egypt and my people will come up from there. This destruction of Egypt into the days of Pharaoh in order to let Israel go was not the end of the story. Because our God is worthy of worship. He is worthy of the worship of the servants of the Lord who went up out of Egypt in the Exodus. He is also worthy of worship of those servants who remained in Egypt only to be restored in future days. Beloved. This is the tremendous picture we have in Psalm 113. That our God is worthy to be praised. Worthy to be praised by his enemies as well as his servants. For all are his servants. Will we not worship him? Will you worship him? Will you come to this God who is worthy of worship and will you praise him? For this is true of our Jesus, who is made of us sons and daughters of the living King, that we might serve Him our worship. Do you guys remember the Shorter Catechism? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It is your purpose to praise God. You are here to praise Him. So let us praise Him. The psalmist, however, goes on in verses 2 and 3 and says that the great power struggle which was down in Egypt, by which the servants of the Lord were delivered from the Egyptian Pharaoh, is not the only place with which God struggles for His people. No, in verses 2 and 3, it says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God didn't simply save Israel from Egypt in order to obtain one generation's worship. But rather from the exodus on and for all eternity. There should be a people who come from that exodus generation. Who worship and bless the name of the Lord forevermore. That there should be perpetual praise to God. Likewise, it says in verse 3 that from the rising of the sun to its going down, the name of the Lord is to be praised. God did not simply bring them up out of Egypt that they might praise him for three days in the wilderness, but rather that they might occupy all the land of Canaan and there praise him from the rising of its sun to its setting. That that property, that piece of land might be devoted for all time to the worship of God. That his name might there dwell as an inhabitant. That his name might be on the praises of his people dwelling with them in the land of Canaan. The The Lord's name is to be praised. And again, just as the word servant connected us back to the Exodus. And showed us how the Lord threw down Pharaoh in order to deliver Israel as a servant of his worship. So this word, the Lord's name, connects us back to the Exodus. Blessed be the name, the name that is to be praised. For in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord visits Moses, he for the first time reveals his name. The name that has been now used four times in our text, five times. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. That name is given to Moses at the burning bush. We translate it here as what we call the scholars call it the tetragrammatron. That, that proves that I went to seminary, and uh, it's called the Lord, the yod hey vav He. That also proves that I went to seminary. These little four letters in Hebrew. It's 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 a form of the verb to be. I am. But in context, it doesn't simply mean self-existent. I am. But actually in Exodus chapter 3, what God is communicating to Moses and through Moses to his people is, I am here. A better theological rendering of the word would be, I am here. I am present. I am the God who is with you. I am the God who is here. I am the God who is paying attention and acting in your world. It is this name, the God who is, and the God who is here. This is the reality for which he should be praised. The reality that should fill up our whole existence. Let me try and make this a little more plain for our everyday lives. When you are on the T, rumbling your way through back bay, God is here. And so there he should be praised. And when you are sitting late at night in a hospital room, God is here. And so he should be praised. And when you're sitting here in this room, he is here. And so he should be praised. And when we're sitting in the cemetery, he is here. And when we're sitting in the grave, He is here. He is the God who is present. Perpetually present. The God who was here when Abraham walked. The God who will be here when you and I are all worm food. He is the God who is here. That's his name. And Egypt didn't believe it. And Israel learned it. In the Exodus, God went down to Egypt and he said to his people, through Moses, I am here. And let us praise him. Let us praise him everywhere we go from this time forth and forevermore. Why? Because he's always there. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Let us praise him from the rising of the sun over there to its setting. Why? Because he's always there. That's who he is. That's his name. The psalmist has laid then this theological foundation from the Exodus. Our God is with us. Our God is the God who is here. So let us praise him. Let us be slaves to his praise. Devoting our every hour to his worship. Devoting our every moment and space to his worship being given over entirely and exclusively to his worship. Then the psalmist builds on this foundation, giving us two ways in which we can know God is here. Two ways to discern the here-ness, the now-ness of our God. First, he is attentive. Our God is here in that he pays attention To us, notice in verses four through six the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold things that are in heaven and on the earth? The psalmist speaks of the Lord high above the nations that is Egypt, that is Canaan. He is enthroned in power over all the rivals and oppressors of his people. They have nothing to fear. He outranks them all. Likewise, his glory is above the heavens. That is above the snow and the ice and the rain and the sun. And all of the various climate effects that we are under its mercy. It is under the mercy of God. That if we were to look to the ceiling, we would find God is higher. If we were to look to the treetops, we would find he is higher. If we were to look to the highest skyscrapers, we would find he is higher. If we were to look to the clouds and the rain, if we were to look to the sun, the moon, the stars, to the farthest reaches of the Hubble telescope, we would find he is higher. Verse 5 concludes, He is so high, there is no one like him. He dwells on high. He is enthroned on high. Who is like The Lord our God. He has no equal. He has no semblance. There is no one beside him. There is no twin. He is there transcendent. And alone. Majestic. And superlative. He is supreme. In all his attributes. But notice verse 6. He is supreme. And superlative. In humility. Though most high, though most glorious, though most great, he humbles himself to see heaven and earth. In Exodus chapter 2, this fact is the beginning of the Exodus event. For in chapters 1 and 2, Moses recounts, how Israel becomes the oppressed slaves of Egypt. And at the end of chapter 2, Moses records this extraordinary little conclusion. The people of Israel groaned, and the Lord heard them. And the people of Israel suffered under the whips of the Egyptians, and the Lord saw them. His people were afflicted and oppressed. And it says, and the Lord knew. The Lord heard his people in Egypt. The Lord saw his people in Egypt. The Lord knew his people in Egypt. Though he is high above all nations, though he is high above the very heavens, though he is alone in Egypt, In his majesty and greatness and glory, though he dwells on high, he humbled himself to hear his people, to see his people, to know his people. Ultimately, this picture is fulfilled best in Christ. You see, Jesus took to himself a true body, ears just like yours. Jesus has ears so that he can hear our cries. Jesus has eyes so that he can see our sorrows. Our God condescends. Our God humbles himself to know us. He is here paying attention to us. Paying attention to our sins and our sorrows. Paying attention to our struggles. This is how we know that the Lord is the right name for this God. He is here. He is paying attention to us. Hearing us. Seeing us. Knowing us. So that he could save us. And this is the second portion of his presence. He is present with us. Knowing us. But he is also present with us saving us he acts verses 7 through 9 he acts to raise the poor out of the dust to lift the needy out of the ashes, to sit him with his princes with the princes of his people this exaltation of the poor and needy addresses their powerlessness by the poor the psalmist means the one who lacks the power to meet their needs by the needy He means the one who has insufficient power to meet their needs. It was Fickert and Corbett in their famous book, When Helping Hurts, who noted, it is only the rich who define poverty as an absence of money. The poor define poverty as an absence of power, an inability to meet their needs. The Lord intervenes. He humbles himself to exalt the most humble. To raise up the poor, the powerless. To lift up the needy, the weak, and the feeble. According to verse 7, he does it from the dust and the ashes. These metaphors point us back to Egypt's rotten condition. By highlighting the death, that living death that slavery was for Israel. The dust is where you bury your dead. You've heard the phrase, right? Ashes to ashes dust to dust. But what is more, the ash sheep is where the living sit when they mourn their dead. He lifts the poor from death. He lifts the needy from mourning for death. The poor who showed themselves powerless to stop death are nevertheless delivered from it. And the needy, who are incapable of doing anything but mourning death, Are exalted and lifted up. Here's the picture for us. That God goes down into Egypt. A living death from which no Israelite could escape. And he exalted the whole nation. And enthroned them over the land of Canaan. They sat as princes. In the land flowing with milk and honey. They who were slaves in the mud of Egypt. In the dust and ashes of death. Are now princes. With their feet on the necks. Of conquered Canaanite kings. They have gone from slaves. To triumphant conquerors. In God and his grace. But again the image is richer still. In us in Christ. That those who are poor and needy. Those of us who are powerless. To do anything in this life. But to weep at the approach of death. Until ourselves succumb to death. We too have this hope. That when they put our bodies in the dust. And when they sit in the ash heap to mourn our passing. We will sit with the prince of his people. For does not the New Testament say repeatedly. We will reign with him. We will judge with Him. We are co-heirs with Christ. To dwell in glory forever. Beloved. This is what the psalmist teaches us to pray. The praises of our God. To recognize the reality of our future. That we who are in this life poor and needy and powerless. Who are in this life Doomed to grieve death until we die, are anticipating a future where we sit with princes in glory forever. This is how we pray through the veil of sorrows and tears into the light of the heavenly hope that is to lie before us. The psalmist gives us one last metaphor to draw this image together. Verse 9. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. The psalmist here speaks of the most poor and most needy person in ancient Near Eastern civilization. A woman without a child. She lacked social standing. She lacked a future, a retirement fund. Kids were how you retired in that culture. She lacked... A name to carry on. A reputation in the community. She lacked financial security. She was among that society the most poor, the most needy. And she was a picture of what we are like in sin and in suffering. A people without a future. A people doomed to die. A people like that first barren woman... Who childless in the garden. Had partaken of the fruit. And in shame and disgrace. Covered her nakedness. Covered her ability to make babies. And said there is no future for me. Only to hear from God. These words. The seed. Of the woman. Shall crush the head of the serpent. And Adam. In faith turns to his woman in the garden and says, we're not going to call you woman anymore. We're going to call you mom. Because you will bear children. And this story is replayed throughout the Old Testament. Sarah is childless and she gives birth to Isaac. Rebecca is childless and she gives birth to Isaac. Rachel is childless and she gives birth. Hannah is childless and she gives birth. And all of these women are heaping up together the theological theme that climaxes in Mary, who is the ultimate barren woman. More barren than all her predecessors. Because those barren women were at least married. And Mary is as childless as they come. She is virgin but she the barren woman finds a home and brings forth the child not just children but the child the Christ child of whom this song speaks praise the lord but this theme played out throughout the scriptures and in the individual experiences of these women are not about individual women they are pictures And types and shadows of the church. For not every woman who has ever been born is promised motherhood in this verse. To the contrary, it is the church who is promised a future. This verse isn't about the ability to produce genetic offspring... It's about God's promise to be wed to his people, his son's bride, and to give them a future. He grants to that barren, childless woman, Israel, a home in the land of Canaan. He makes of her a joyful mother of children, a generation of worshipers who will praise the Lord. He visits his church and he restores her and he builds her. Beloved, we've been here for 127 years now. I had to do the math. And there was a time not that long ago when we wondered if we would have a future. When we wondered, will there be in this building a congregation who can be called a joyful mother? Do you know what I've done As a pastor for five years, second only to preaching sermons, baptized babies. We have become a joyful mother of children as a church. And that is exactly what God promises. Not just to individuals, it's a sweet hope. Let us pray for one another. Not just to congregations, let us pray for one another. But to the church collectively, that we in Christ are a bride and our groom will not leave us there. He will give us a future. This is how we pray for our future, knowing that Christ is our future. Because I've turned it and applied it to our congregation, it is appropriate for me to end with this observation. This is a painful lesson to learn. Some of you know where I'm going. I spent eight years planting a church that doesn't exist. What does this verse mean for me? He told us we would have a future. That church doesn't have a future. This can be a hard thing to learn. But I remember when the day came... When I was your pastor, and Enid was closed, and I didn't want to be a pastor anymore. At all. I wanted to quit. And I spoke to a pastor friend. And he told me, Noah, your reward isn't a growing, thriving church. It's Jesus. And here I am. Beloved, Jesus is your future. Not a church full of people. Not a city full of revival. As wonderful as those things are and we want them. Our future is Christ. Our future is praising God. Glorifying and enjoying Him with every breath, no matter how few or many they are. That's our future. And that's a future we can pray for and expect. Beloved, this is our first psalm of Exodus out of earth, out of self, out of sin and misery into the true heavenly reality. Jesus is our future. So let's fill our prayers with His praises. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give You thanks for this beautiful day. We give You thanks for this beautiful psalm. We give You thanks for a beautiful Savior. One who is worthy of all our worship. One who is greater than all of life's success. One who is greater than all of life's failures. One who is greater than all of our sin. Greater than all of our sorrows. Greater than our death. We give you thanks for our Jesus in whom is abundant life. In whom is eternal life. And we pray that we would see today His worthiness, His greatness, His goodness. And that we would fill this day with His praises. Oh, plant Your praises in our hearts and on our lips. We pray, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.